This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Hey everyone, welcome to Retail Retold. This past weekend, I had an incredible shopping experience at Target. For me, it was an amazing experience because how they have now combined the digital and the physical and provided so many different convenient ways for me to shop them. On Sunday, on Father's Day, I could have had the athletic socks and yes, That was the product I was in search for, new, fresh socks that I wanted were at the store. I could have had them delivered to me same day. I could have had them bring it to my car. I could have walked in the store and picked it up right away, or I could have went in the store and shopped. I chose the latter because I wanted to see what was going on in the world and being a retail nerd. I wanted to see what consumer behavior was like. But to me, that's not the story. The story is that I'm here two days later and I'm continuing to talk about it. Word of mouth marketing is free. In a world where everyone is continuing to try to increase sales, I would ask you, If two, three days, two, three weeks later after an experience, are your customers still talking about you in a positive way? If they are, you probably have a good word of mouth marketing strategy. If not, probably should think about that. And what could you do to enhance your word of mouth marketing? On today's episode, we have Chris Walton. He is fascinating, has a really cool look as to what's going on, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, we have Chris Walton. Chris is the co-CEO of OmniTalk. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm excited to have you. Uh, I think uh, the listeners probably have seen you writing for Forbes and some other things. So um, tell us a little bit about OmniTalk and what you guys do. Yeah, so OmniTalk is a blog. My partner, uh, Ann Mazing, and I started about, God, it's been about three years ago now. Um, And we started it after we finished what, uh, at the time, we were heading up Target's Store of the Future project. And so that was an exploration of, 
say, hey, five to 10 years out, why are people still coming to physical stores to shop? And for us, it was how do you conceive of the target brand and trying to answer that question? Uh, and so when that project came to an end, my partner decided, and I decided to go out on our own and we started OmniTalk. And we thought, you know what, we've got a really unique set of experiences and let's talk about that subject, omni-channel retailing. It's something that's passionate, passionate to us. It's funny, when we started the blog, omni was kind of a word people weren't using as much or they were going away from, but now with COVID, it seems like it's making quite a resurgence. But that's what we do. We love, Anna and I love retail and all we talk about is what is the future of retail? How is it changing? How do you think of the right blend of human, physical, and technological design to make it all happen? And, and so that's what we do on a regular basis. You mentioned I write for Forbes. I'm a senior contributor for them. I usually write for them about five or six times a month. I write for the Robin Report regularly. Uh, and then on our own blog, OmniTalk, omnitalk.blog, we produce weekly podcasts. Uh, we, uh, on a regular basis, we'll produce spotlight podcast interviews of up and coming tech companies or people that are, we think are making a pretty big impact on how retail is going to play out. And then we send that out to our subscribers and put it on social media. And we've been doing it for about three years and have made a business of it. And I got great advice. As long as you follow your interests, you'll always be interested. And that's kind of what led us to do it uh, right from the get go. I haven't heard it put that way. If you always follow your interests. <laughs> You'll always be interested. That's a, that's a good way to put it. You, I've, I've heard many variations of uh, that, that proverb, let's say, but I uh, haven't heard that one. Right. And so tell everybody, what did you do at Target? Yeah. So at Target, I did a, I did a number of things. So my, I have a pretty long background in retail. I've spent over 20 years in retail. Started my career actually in San Francisco at the Gap uh, in the late 90s, right at the height of the khaki swing craze. Um, when Mickey Drexler was heading that up, spent about four years there, like I said, and after and what, that, and what, what role, what did you do at the gap? Yeah, great question. So mostly actually in inventory and supply chain. So it was inventory planning and allocation, um, for those that are, you know, more familiar with retail, but basically how do you get product from the factories into the stores? That's what I did day in and day out. And at the time I was really, you know, pretty good at doing that. I, I knew a lot about men's and women's denim. Uh, and how to order different sizes, but I really knew nothing about business. So I ended up going to business school after my time there. And, and uh, following business school, I linked up with Target. So I came to Target in 05. Uh, and at Target, I did a lot of different things. And I think that's what makes me unique. I think that's what makes my perspective different from a lot of what you'll read out there in the marketplace. But started my career in traditional merchandising, uh, stores merchandising, uh, a lot of time in home furnishings, even ran frozen food for a period of time, the baby area. Uh, but what was really interesting about me in 2000, God, what was it? 2011, uh, I moved to Colorado uh, for personal reasons. And at the time, made the decision to actually stay with Target and go learn how to run stores. So I ran my own Super Target for a period of time. I ended up running about 12 stores spread across northern Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, and South Dakota. So I was in my car about 30,000 miles a year. Um, and there are many times I was a I was a 30, I had graduated from the Harvard Business School and I was 34, 35 years old and I was bagging groceries and throwing freight off the truck many days of the week. And my family thought it was crazy at the time, but had I not done it, I wouldn't be talking to you today. That's for sure. Uh, and then from there, as luck would have it, my wife and I moved back to Minneapolis. We had just had our first son uh, and Target asked us to move back and I became the vice president of home furnishings for Target.com. Uh, I had no e-com experience at the time. Target had just come off the Amazon platform. Uh, they brought in a lot of great people who were mentors to me. Actually, it's the same gentleman who gave me the advice, Jason Goldberger, about following your interests. 
uh, and just fell in love with it. Loved how fast paced it was, how close to consumer e-commerce is day in and day out. Uh, and probably had the most financial success I've ever had in any single job too, um, in terms of how we're able to grow the business very quickly over a short period of time. And yeah, and then from there, it graduated into uh, the store of the future role, which was a two-year exploration, you know, at a very large scale of, you know, what works and what doesn't for the future of omnichannel retailing. So we have a really candid point of view based on all of that collective work um, that I've done over the past 20 years of, you know, these are the technologies that can work for scale. These are what consumers really want because we've spent time trying to understand that and we keep pretty close tabs on it week in and week out as well. So that's a lot. Let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So first, from a retail perspective, you spent a ton of time in inventory, supply chain logistics. And, you know, that's about how to get the product from the factories to the stores most efficiently, cost effectively, make sure you have the right product in the store, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Then you move into merchandising. You're in the corporate office. Corporate office, yep. And so what are you doing in merchandising? Yeah, in merchandising, I mean, essentially your job there was to pick the product. You're picking the products that go on the shelves. And then I would say also you're deciding how to price the product and also how to market the product. Um, I think at the core, somebody asked me last week, that's probably at the core what I am as a merchant at heart. Uh, you know, and it's about, you know, what is the product you're trying to sell? How do you market it? And, uh, you know, what makes people gravitate to one thing over another? You know, a lot of it is just, you know, you have a certain amount of shelf space in the, st- shelf space in the store, excuse me. Uh, and a lot of it is just portfolio optimization and marketing. And that's really essentially what a merchant's job is day in and day out. We're going to get back to that because I, I have a theory that's, that's concerning it. me on, on merchandising. Okay, I'd love to talk about that. And then, uh, the, then you move and you get your first foray into yeah. the field. Yeah. And now you're in the field and you're running stores. Mm-hmm. How has that shaped you? Oh, incredibly. I mean, that was, like I said, it was the single best decision I've ever made in my career. Um, because you got to see retail from a different point of view that not everyone gets to see. And I, at the time, there was no one in merchandising at Target that had ever done that. I was the first one to do that. And I don't know if anyone's done that since. There have been some other people within the company in different roles. But there's people that go from the field to corporate. Lots of that. Lots, lots of, of that, that, right? Yeah. There were some examples of maybe like supply chain guys going in and running warehouses and things of that nature. But I was the first true merchant to go in and run a store. And I mean, I got to tell you, Chris, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Um, and, and, you know, fortunately, Target was really smart, I think, in terms of uh, how they set me up for success, too. They gave me time to learn. And I had a ton of great mentors out in the field as well that to this day are still some of my absolute best friends. Um, there was a guy named, by the name of Todd who I piled around with on his hip every single day for about three months, you know, before they handed that store over to me for the first time. And so the training is immense. It's like you're drinking from a fire hose. I mean, people forget uh, what you're, you know, what you're dealing with on the HR side of things is so different than what you're facing, uh, you know, up at a headquarters, so to speak. Oh yeah. So you, you were, were you managing people in merchandising? I was. Yep. yep. How many people did you manage in merchandising? At that time, when I probably left for the field, I probably had, I would say, somewhere in the range of like 60 to 70 people under my charge. But you move out to the field and suddenly that number, I was trying to do the math the other day, it was probably, depending on the season, you know, 1,200 to 2,000 people at any given time. Wow. Um, I'm surprised. I didn't realize you you had 60, 70 people under your charge in in corporate as well. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Early on in the career and then later it got even bigger. But 
but yeah, exactly. So it was, you know, so, you know, imagine that dynamics from an HR perspective of how do you hire, how do you recruit, how do you fire when necessary? Um, not just at your own location, but, you know, as a district manager, how are you doing that across four states? That teaches you how to manage from afar, and that teaches you a lot of different skills than you probably had heading into that job. Totally. And so you go back, Target likes you. They, they <laughs> grew you pretty fast from the inventory logistics guy in the gap to, you know, charged with uh, managing 60, 70 people and picking product. And then you get over to Colorado, you go in the field, then you come back to Minneapolis. And when you come back to Minneapolis, you're working on what? Yeah, bitch. I was told that I was in charge of home furnishings on target.com and, uh, <laughs> with no experience. Um, that was probably the scariest moment in my career. Even though I'd never done stores, it wasn't as scary because like I had shopped, I knew what that was like. I had a lot of merchandising background, supply chain background. So there's a lot of things that you could pick up more easily. I can remember sitting in my first Monday morning meeting where the team is telling me about the performance of, uh, of how things did uh, uh, you know, on target.com. And I didn't even know the language they were speaking. Like the conversation is different, the topics are different. And I turned to somebody next to me and said, like, uh, my boss at the time, I'm like, man, I'm going to need some help because I have no idea what anybody's saying. Um, but fortunately, you know, you're a quick study. And I've, I've, found through, I've found through my career, probably one lesson I've taken is like, you know, if you, again, if you're interested, that's important. But jump in and try to figure it out because I think that's, what, that's where you get the growth experiences, right? Like, I think it was Lionel Richie who said, life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. Um, at Shop Talk. And I, ever since I heard him say that, I totally believe that. And that was one of those experiences. I knew nothing, uh, but you just learn it. And uh, retail's detail. That's the other expression you always hear. And so you just try to understand where the details that matter to e-commerce and, and you go from there. And it's continuously and so changing. When you say running the, the home furnishings, what does that mean? Yeah. So I was basically in charge of all merchants for Target.com. Uh, which was, ah, gosh, at that time, probably roughly about the same number. Uh, and so we were in charge of picking all of the product for the website. Uh, we were at that time in charge of pricing all the product for the website, the marketing, the promotions, uh, everything, getting it to the customer, uh, and, all of it. And then you, and then you have this cool project that they want you to be a part of, which is the store of the future. Tell me, uh, what were you doing there? How big yeah, is so this team? That, that's a good, great question. So the team actually, it started just my partner and I, um, and she was actually technically first. And then I was brought and in who, to like, head the project. Who, who picked you to do that? So I reported at the time to the chief strategy officer. Uh, and, and collectively, I think the organization said, look, Chris, at the time, myself, I had a very unique background. So as a mass merchant to have merchandising, uh, field experience and e-com experience, that was, that's hard to find. And so, you know, my resume was kind of built for this type of thing. And so they said, Hey, why don't you come in and lead this project? And it was simply that question. I reported the chief strategy officer and actually the chief creative officer as well. And I was charged with that question five to 10 years out. Why are people still coming to a target to shop? And how would you conceive of targets omnichannel answer to that question? And so it started just the two of us. And then from there, basically acted as a CEO inside of a company. So it was a perfect example of entrepreneurship. Uh, so we started building out the team, just like you would a startup. So I had a head of engineering, 
you know, you ha I had an entire product team stood up around uh, the total store concept. We thought of the store almost as a product like you would in the digital space. And so that's how we built and constructed the team around it. You know, had somebody in charge of merchandising, had somebody in, in charge of, you know, in-store labor, but all within the construct of, you know, how to use kind of the product model to bring this to market, which was very different than, you know, is you typically see in retail. Is that what led to all that led to the, the big CapEx remodel of the stores that happened where the street was, didn't like it and then it worked and they loved it? <laughs> I, I, I can't take, I can't take credit for that. I can and there's only so much I can speak about, but I can say, I think, you know, the ideas definitely helped inform where target was going in the future. Um, and there are definitely specific spots where if you look at how things have been implemented, you can see some of the roots in, in the work that we were doing. Awesome. And, and so then you decided to go out on your own. Yeah. After spending a long career at target, good terms, leave on good terms with target. Yeah, I did. The, so the project ended, I think it was, uh, uh, Jan, gosh, when was it? January, 2017. Uh, we both, both my partner and I, she actually had her second son we stayed around for another six to seven months. Um, doing, uh, just doing various projects around the company. Did you miss merchandising and being a no. merchant? Did you miss the e-com? No? no, I didn't. And here's why, because I'd done it. Yeah. And so when you get a taste of a project like that, um, and also having the autonomy. I mean, we were working as a black box operation. We were not in the headquarters. We were actually in our own warehouse. So we had full purview over a lot of interesting. It was a black box operation. That's amazing. Yeah, it was great. And so, you know, it was just hard to go back and say, you know what, I'm going to do something I've done before. And, and for me, my, my father actually died on a commercial airline crash when he was 38. Oh my God. Uh, Sorry to hear that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And so at the time I had just turned 40. And so I said to myself, you know what? I've always had, even in business class, taken a lot of entrepreneurial classes, but I never tried it. And so, um, you know, I just made the decision. I said, you know what? Now's the time. Um, retail, retail in general at that time too, Chris was kind of in a weird place where people weren't exactly sure where to go. And there was still a lot of just gravitating towards the general mean of how things should be done. And so I ultimately made the decision to say, you know what? I've got a lot to offer in a different way. Let's try this. And so far, I've never regretted that decision at all. Do you still connect with a lot of people at Target? Yeah, as much as I can. Um, and I think at now, given what I do in terms of reporting on the industry, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people throughout the industry, I try not to connect too much with Target and Best Buy overly so, uh, just because I make a deliberate effort, I actually rarely write about them or comment on them, just because I think it's important to stay out of the own echo chamber that we're in here in Minneapolis and try to broaden our horizons. Got it. But they're both doing really well. So yeah, they're doing great. Yeah, they're doing yeah. really good. It's good. It, Minneapolis was always the epicenter of retail. You know, it was only until Amazon that Minneapolis really wasn't always in the foreground. When you think about it, you had one of the Sears guys was from Sears and Robot guys was from from Minnesota, and then you have Target, Best Buy, Dayton Hudson's, all kinds of stuff. So one of my concerns about retail is I think some of the the guys, like one of the reasons the DTC that I find interesting with DTC, forget about the economics because some of the economics of these DTC companies don't work. And I sure. speak a lot about that on the, on this podcast, but the fact that you, they have a product 
that you might not be able to find anywhere else, right? I think right now, I'm not sure, but I, I remember Nike took off Amazon. They're, you can't find Nike on Amazon or, or right. I don't know. I don't know if you can anymore, but I know they did that it at was, some point. They did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so people are protecting their channel, right? There's a company out of Wisconsin, Duluth Trading. They're yep. public, right? And I don't know if you can find their stuff anywhere else now, but at one point I think it was in their stores or on their website. And I think, and, and there's, and there's companies like that are protecting their channel. And one of the things, and so if you have a unique offering that you can't find anywhere else, it's going to draw people to the store, right? If you have that unique offering that people crave, right. And, you know, I, I worry that a lot of mass merchants and, you know, general retail folks have merchandise folks comped on how product does. And so you end up with all these stores that I, and the example I use is everyone's selling Pampers and Pepsi. And there's a lot, not a lot of differentiation because there's some merchandising person who's like, oh, Pampers and Pepsi is crushing it right now. Let's get Pampers and Pepsi out on the shelves. Mm -hmm. And how that is total guessing on my point, yeah. on my part. Is that real? No, I think, I think you're hitting on something. I think there's some nuances that I would add to it. Uh, but I think you're absolutely hitting on something. I think, you know, there is, there is this tendency to believe that, you know, I can pick, and this, it goes back throughout retail, that if I can pick product better than the next guy, and I talked about portfolio optimization, if I can just portfolio optimize my shelves better than the next guy, people will come. Well, that's not really true in, in, a, in, a, in a couple ways. First thing is we're all gravitating towards online, especially right now. I mean, look at this, look at the e-commerce statistics over the last few months. They're, they're going through the roof. And so even if I can find it on your shelves, chances are I might want to start buying it online. And so that has economic implications in terms of it's more expensive. So what are you going to do about that retailer? You've got to figure out some way to alter your business model to make up for that. And then the second piece is like, you've got to be really careful about how much you weigh into that strategy because some of it to a degree might be differentiating, but to your point, there's a lot of products that aren't. And that's where you see a lot of companies in, 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 in quite a world of hurt, in my opinion. So the best example I like to use is Macy's. Like to me, Macy's is no different than Blockbuster or Toys R Us that came before it. Or the, let's even broaden that out, the department store in general. Like the department store was great. It was by default the most convenient way to go find all kinds of different apparel that quite frankly, especially now with e-commerce, are available everywhere, not just from a Macy's or department store. And so in reality, they're just, they're just sitting there right now like the Toys Superstore or the Video Superstore of yesteryear. It was just e-commerce hasn't hit or the consumer hasn't hit that business model to its fullest extent yet, but it sure as hell looks like it's going to come at some point in the future. So I think you're right. And the bigger question to me now is actually, I would make the argument that the buyers are almost being disintermediated. That at some point, the buyers or the merchants, quote unquote, are no longer, I talked about Mickey, Mickey Drexler, the merchant prince. I don't know that it's, so the future is going to be so much about the merchant princes as it's going to be about the other people that hold the role of authority. And I think the role of authority is, as you're saying, somewhat the direct-to-consumer brands. But also more importantly, it's the influencers. The influencers in a lot of ways now are starting to act like the merchants. When we only could go into stores, that was our only option. And so the merchants were the gatekeepers. Well, now the influencers that people look up to can be those gatekeepers for many, many different types of products. And I think that's going to be something really interesting. That's interesting. The influencers are the mer new merchants. That's interesting. Yep. You know, it, I, I talk to a lot of people that 
you know, in retail. And when there's a merchant at the helm, that's a leader. Yep. It feels that the people that work in the retail feel better about the company. Everyone wants to work for a merchant, you know, yeah, not some wall street guy, right. They want to work for a merchant. (laughs) Um, so I've always been a believer that the merchant matters, but, um, but it's an interesting point that the, uh, I think that used to be the case, Chris. And I think you're right. I think in general, the retail industry probably feels more comfortable with that when they say something like the CFO running the company. But I think what is clearer now more than ever is that the merchant's role is not just about picking product. The merchant, whoever's leading that company under whatever title it is, has to have a good omni-channel understanding of the total product that's offered under that brand. So previously, it used to be the products you pick on the shelves. But now I think as we're moving forward, and Jeff Bezos is probably the best at this of anyone, it is what is the full, what is the full omni-channel conception of what, say, a Target or a Walmart means. Walmart's doing a great job of it right now, too, in terms of what are all the technical pieces I need to bring into it? What are all the, the physical design elements I need to bring into it? The service complements to it. That's what the new merchants of the 21st century need to be about. It's not just about picking products because quite honestly, in the online universe, every product's available. So you're going to have to bring something else to the table to win. Is there still getting the right product in the store matters? Yeah, I think you still have to optimize it for whomever is making that trip for whatever reasons why, 100%. You still have to have something compelling for them to purchase, whether they're visiting your website or whether you're visiting the store. But to think that that alone is going to be the answer is, is no, in no way, shape, or form going to work. So that, that's really fascinating stuff. The, you know, and, and the other piece I was getting to was, is a lot of the, you know, in places where there's lack of differentiation in stores, because you can find the same product at a lot of places. Yep. Is, is that, you know, merchandising teams that are, being told what to put on the, in the store, is that merchandising teams feeling, you know, being conservative as to, I know Pampers and Pepsi sell, mm-hmm. people need Pampers and Pepsi. And so that's what I'm putting on the shelf. What, what is that? I mean, I think that can be a combination of a lot of different things. You know, I think it could be, you know, that is generally speaking what Pampers and Pepsi is in as an example, that could be generally speaking what people want. <laughs> Um, it also could be the outgrowth of what I think is a potential problem is always looking back on history, uh, and saying, okay, here's what sold before. So here's what I'm going to put in again. But if you continue to do that approach, which is what, as you bring a lot of MBAs and you see that a lot in retail, that approach doesn't work either because you start to siphon, you know, a certain amount of business off the com every year. So while it looks like it would work, the past isn't a good indicator of the future. And so that's where I again, go back to what merchants always used to be and what the role of the influencer is now. There used to be an art to retail and the good retailers are the, one who un, the ones who understand both sides of the brain and can appeal to why someone is either in that store or on that e-commerce portal at a certain time and captivate and capture their man, imagination in doing it. And that's what I think the influencers, you see them doing so well, you know, in social media. And as they get up to speed with different tools, whether it's, you know, what Instagram's doing with shopping or Facebook's doing with shopping or, you know, or even what like TikTok and platforms like that end up doing with shopping. That's where they start bringing the art to that in a different, more powerful way than say some, some buyer at a retailer looking at a spreadsheet from the days gone before. 
Really interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm still stuck on this. The influencers, the new merchant. Uh, that's, yeah, uh, that's, that's why I came back to it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really interesting. And so, you know, what's your take now and pivoting a little bit, you know, where we are today, what's going on? You know, you mentioned, yeah. you know, before you answer that, you mentioned the acceleration of, of retail on, you know, to e-commerce. Yeah. One of the things that I think is fascinating and I don't know if it's formal yet what the numbers are, but the amount of those, the, the incremental increase online that was actually fulfilled by a store. Right. So really the buy online pickup in store. Right. Is buy online pickup in store and you being a supply chain guy by training an answer to the last mile? Yeah, I think it, I, I, I would actually pivot. I think yes, in some ways, but I actually said, I think there's a more, I think there's probably a better way to think about it because I think the best way to always is to think about it from a consumer perspective. It's sometimes a better answer for convenience. And by default, the retailers benefit from the fact that that actually saves on last mile delivery. And the reason I say that is if you look and you COVID made it very clear, there are just some times where waiting for a delivery just doesn't work for everything. <laughs> I, I went, I went on to, you know, one of the largest yeah. companies out there's website and uh, my Pampers, I have a three-year-old and a, a 21 month old, my Pampers said three weeks and I'm like, this is not going to work. Gonna work. Yeah. And so I went on Walmart's website. They told me what store had it. I went in there. There was a ton of boxes out of it. Uh, I bet as I bought as many as they let me buy during that panic right. buying phase, and uh, we're good. Yeah, right. Diapers, I mean, good, and yeah. it was very convenient, and I loved it. Exactly. I mean, I think about grocery is like that too. Is endemic to that too. You don't always know what you want to eat ahead of time, and so sometimes you may just want to ring it up on the way home, and I'll pick it up as I'm you know driving home, or maybe on my lunch break, or whatever it is. There's there's still moments where physicality matter in the conversation of convenience that haven't been fully explored by retailers. And the cool thing about COVID is that it's pushing that experimentation. I always like to say another thing that I've kind of written down is that I think this period of time is the greatest hall pass for experimentation in the history of retail, because it's forcing you to say, now, what do consumers really need given all the constraints and dynamics that I have and where would I invest the most for them? And so it's, it's fun to watch. So yeah, curbside pickup, um, you know, buy online, pick up in store, even concierge services like Sam's Club has begun experimenting with um, all these quote unquote forms of contactless payment in some ways. That stuff's all really interesting and ultimately at the end of the day helps the consumer, but also does help the retailers financially, depending on how it all mixes out. And every retailer is going to be different. Right now, we're reading a lot about uh, some of the 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 fallen brick and mortar retailers that aren't making it there's bankruptcy headline news i don't read a lot about the the digitally only brands who -hmm. are going into the pandemic unprofitable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and their outlook probably looks pretty bleak right now given they went into this unprofitable they're just buying market share you know you've got a couple that are given a hall pass wayfair's one of them they're given a hall pass because they're, you know, and they announced, I think, you know, I was told they, they, they said on their, their last call, if they had stopped investing into the supply chain, supply chain. They, they would have been profitable, um, but it's still big losses. And a lot of these digitally only are just piling up losses, VC back. Do we, 
you know, it doesn't seem, and, and someone once told me that for Chris and Chris to open up a t-shirt shop and do it online only, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's profitable. The minute you start to scale and typically maybe about over $10 million in revenue, which is probably when you're going to multiple markets, if you don't have a brick and mortar presence, it's very hard to get profitable. You need huge infrastructure, huge CapEx. And we don't talk about that enough. It's just like everyone, the consumer's going online, but at some point, if it's not profitable, the, the retailers, one, may not be able to offer it because there's just, there's, it's just the economics don't make sense. Or two, there, there really has to be this omni-channel. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's where, I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the rubs. I think the, the other layer I put into it too, is like, what are you as a brand? right? You know, are you, are you a brand or are you a retailer? And I think that's still a space that's not as well understood by kind of the DTC community as can be. Um, just putting up a store doesn't necessarily answer, uh, provide answers to the questions that I think you're inherently asking. Um, you know, so like, just because you want to do physical retail, it doesn't always make sense. Like, why does it, why does it matter for you, for the consumer you're trying to reach? So I, I always say this, like stores exist for five reasons, whether they're digital or physical. I always talk about this. One, they can be a place of immediate gratification. Two, a place of convenience. Three, a place of inspiration. And then fourth and fifth, which are really the physical differentiators, at least right now, this idea of taction, which is the ability to touch and feel product, but to do that in a way that gives you confidence in your purchase. That's why people want to touch and feel their avocados, for example. And then lastly, the sheer experience of being somewhere. So if you're a DTC and you get to that point of scale, then you have to ask what matters for my end consumer within the context of that conversation? Am I better going wholesale? Am I better going as a standalone retailer, but fundamentally, whatever choice you make, you have to be, if, especially if you decide to go retail, why am I coming there to begin with when I could still just shop online? And that's a fundamentally really hard thing to answer. And so I always tell people, you got to make sure that you really understand who you are conceptually before you take those steps. Yeah, There's I, a lot of people playing in and around that space that I think somewhat are questionable too, in terms of how they're trying to think about aiding people and answering that. Yeah, the, one other piece to that is, I, I, and I made a LinkedIn post recently about this, is what is convenient? Yeah. Mean? I yep. think convenience, you know. 100%. To, to some, the, 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 I, the example I used is I started with what does lazy mean? Are you the person in the, that, that drives around the parking lot looking, waiting for the first spot in front of the entrance to open up? <laughs> or are you not that lazy? You're the other lazy, which is, you don't want to wait around for that. So you just park in the first spot that's available. And I find the same. Are you the lazy that doesn't want to go to the store and order it online? Or do you not want to wait and you want it right now and you're going to go to the store and get it? And which is more convenient? Not lazy, lazy, wrong word. Which is more convenient to you to have that? Have the, which is more convenient? Have the ability to buy it online Yep. right now and get it shipped and you'll get it. Or that's not convenient because I don't want to wait till tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I don't want to wait for three hours if we get to that point. Yeah. I want to go and pick up right now. Mm -hmm. What's more can, convenient? And, I, and that to, to me, that kind of piggybacks off what you said as far as really that, you know, understanding your consumer that you're selling to. 
Mm-hmm. And it also depends on, I think also to the psychology of, do you know, the other thing too about whether, what convenience <laughs> means also matters in terms of, do you know what you want or not? So like, are you in a search mode, which e-commerce is beautiful for, or are you in a browse mode? You know, and so that also depends, a discovery mode as a consumer. And so that also depends on as a product, where do you play in that psychology? Like if you're tied and people know all about you, well, then chances are you need to be distributed in places where people can hunt and pack and find you very quickly and easily because they're not going to go to a lot of effort to get that product. They're not going to go to any more effort to get that product than they have. But if you're, say, a product category or a brand that, you know, plays to that different psychology, then, yeah, people might be willing to go to experience that or to, to invest more time in trying to figure out what it is that they ultimately want from that. Unless you need clean clothes and you have no detergent. Yeah. And then you just got to shop. Yeah. Then you just got to shop or you look like you and I on a podcast right now. Yeah. That's exactly. it too, right? Uh, so if you were to put the state of retail today, what, you know, yeah. give me in a, in a Twitter message of 280 characters or less, what is, where's the state of retail? I think retail's in a reckoning. So that's the word I always use. It's not a retail apocalypse. That phrase was, it was far overused, but in reality, what it was prior to COVID and what it is now is it's a retail reckoning. And the virus is now just exposing where business models, quite frankly, are exposed uh, for the long term. And it's just going to be a matter of time before we see some more retailers, I think, fall by the wayside or get their reckoning, so to speak. What's the positive of retail? <laughs> the positive is I think you'll see it reborn. I mean, we have to shop, we have to consume. And so I think, and you're starting to see this from companies like a, like a Walmart, a Target, you know, again, even a Best Buy, a Costco, I'd throw in there. You're see, and, then, and then you've got all the small players who are just starting out. I even throw Wafer in this too. Wafer doesn't even have stores yet. So they've got nothing but room to grow in that respect. And so you're starting to see uh, how companies are going to refashion themselves around this omni-channel conception of how do I flexibly meet the needs of my consumer day in and day out. And so you'll have kind of a, a Phoenix rebirth of retail, so to speak, but the players will be different. The pie will still be the pie, but who slices up the pie will be different. That's why I thought you put a great post on, on, on LinkedIn last week where it was talking about just like the further, what I almost would call the microtization of, of a mall space. Like, yes, maybe the anchors aren't there the way we used to know it, but those will be replaced by smaller, more distinct versions that cater to what people need day in and day out. Think about it. We've already seen that pattern. You've seen that in how we consume media in terms of Netflix and streaming. How we, you know, like even ride hailing is an example of almost that, like microtization of, you know, how do we meet our needs at different times, given what we need to accomplish all again, because we are pressed. So I think that's what is really inspiring to me is to see how companies are going to come to the fore to fill that space for that back. But it's going to take time. Do we need stores? Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back. I think it goes back to the question we had before. Um, and you can see it under, I mean, and there are certain segments of the population as of right now that absolutely need stores. Like for example, food stamps, you can't use those online except in a handful of States. Those people need to eat, right? Like people in those situations need to eat elderly, not going to be as affluent with technology. We still need stores. And like we said, there's just still times where a physical experience is more convenient or more enjoyable for the consumer, given the psychological dimensions I talked about. So yes, they will always exist, 
But in terms of what is the final end road, I just wrote about this in Forbes too, what is the final end road of e-commerce penetration? We haven't gotten there yet. And we definitely haven't gotten there yet in many categories. I would, you could argue almost all the categories, but some have more to go than others. So yes, stores will exist, but the balance ultimately still has a long way to go to settle. How long does it have to go? Oh, geez. I think, it, I think it depends on the categories. I think you're closer to it in, say, things like apparel and electronics, where the degrees of penetration are higher. Home furnishings is probably sitting there right in the middle, but I think you've probably got at least another you know, 10 to 15% to go here over the next, I'd say, three to five-year period. Groceries, grocery and healthcare, though, of course, are the real big battlegrounds. And there's still a lot of dynamics there that have to be figured out. But Hey, we've only been at this for about 20 years. So to say, you know, that it's going to happen overnight, I think is probably foolish, but you know, still again, over the next five to 10 years, there could be massive changes in those industries too. Do you see with the demise of some retailers, do you see new retailers coming out brick and mortar first versus, you know, versus a Warby Parker who starts online and then goes to brick and mortar. Do you see brick and, you know, you know, I, I was fascinated. I was fascinated that when Toys R Us filed, yeah. they were like fortune 300 company. They had 11 and a half billion dollars in retail sales of toys. Most of which was done in the store. I am surprised no one tried to go in and gobble up some of that market share with brick and mortar presence. That to me, see, $11.5 billion that didn't all go to Amazon, Target, and Walmart. There was market share to be had. I was surprised no one. Will people start to fill the voids in a brick and mortar presence? That is an awesome question that no one's ever asked me. Um, like, I think you're onto something. Like, I've been kind of dumbfounded by that as well because you, you'll see the VC, VCs throw hundreds. I mean, I can think of like Brandless as an example. Well, the rumor was 100 to $200 million thrown at that company. And I think there's this idea that these DTC brands are somehow techni you know, technology companies by nature, but in reality, they're not. At the end of the day, they're still retailers. But you're right. There is this huge opportunity, in my opinion, to reconceptualize how physical retail works from the ground up with a different tech stack than has existed before. It's hard for a Walmart or a Target or a Costco to spin on a dime because of the legacy tech stack that they have. But coming in and refashioning that in a different way is a huge opportunity. And God knows you could do it for, those, for that same amount of dollars. And then when you start thinking about the proportion of retail that still is physical versus digital and the profit that comes with it, that's not a bad VC investment, especially when, you know, at the end of the day, those are high risk investments to try to see if you could get it to pay off. Yeah, why not reinvent the not? warehouse? Yeah, yeah, why not reinvent the warehouse? Why not reinvent Target or Walmart? That hasn't happened. Why not? It doesn't make any sense. But the issue is you've got to have, usually entrepreneurs are young. You have to show that background. So like, are you going to go and be like, I need, you know, $50 million to reinvent Walmart and people are, you know, that's, a, it's just, I think it's a tough sell inherently, but I think there's something there. It, it's uh, I think headline news has made it challenging. Mm -hmm. Right. But yeah. How so? I, uh, I think you, right now it's very contrarian mm -hmm. and you need the right, the right people because people, you know, it looks like when you look at the numbers, the growth online is, is, is more compelling to a VC. It's just not profitable. <laughs> Whereas the store is profitable. 
Right. And so I think that you will, I, I, I think there's, we're onto something and we should start the conversation because there's obviously, you know, stores that, and concepts that should be happening based on the market share left on the table. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not seeing it as much as we did, but I think at some point it will. And your point about the VCs and, and why they should, I think was uh, well said. And hopefully we will uh, start to see some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a, it's a fun topic to think through because yeah. are, every category has probably that opportunity. Yeah. Well, listen, man, that's what I got for today. Um, the end of the show, we, we typically do uh, three questions for retail wisdom. We're just going to ask you one question. Oh boy. I get one. All right. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. Man, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think we, t- I, I think we talked about it already, but I, I, I think for me, it's actually Toys R Us. I mean, I think you, as we talked about the dimensions for why a store exists, and you have young kids. I have young kids. Mine are five and seven. There's still something about that experience that is innately interesting to them. And so how do you really create a toy, I would say, quote, unquote, kind of superstore feeling with all the omni-channel capabilities you would expect, but also give people a reason to go there beyond just the product? Um, you know, and I don't think they tried to recreate themselves, but when you try to do it in 3,000 square feet, that, like they did this past you know, fall, that doesn't have the imagination required to captivate me. And then I've seen some other instances, like say like camp in New York, where they've gone fully experiential, but that doesn't have enough product to last for the long haul either, nor the omni-channel capabilities you would expect. That's just more like an entertainment center. There's a way to blend those two along the ethos of everything we've been talking about that I think would be fascinating. Awesome. Well, listen, man, that's what I had for today. Awesome, Thanks dude. so much. Great conversation, man. I yeah. hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, I did. That was awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.